Who knows best about planning a city? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Alain Berthaud. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Alain Berthaud. Berto has worked as an urban planner in a number of cities such as Bangkok, New York, and Paris. He was a principal urban planner at the World Bank. After retiring from the World Bank in 1999, he worked as an independent consultant. He has been a senior research scholar at the NYU Marin Institute of Urban Management since 2012. Berto's research, conducted in collaboration with his wife Marie Agnes, aims to bridge the gap between operational urban planning and urban economics. His book, Order Without Design, How Markets Shape Cities, was published in 2018 and will inform a lot of our discussion today. Alain, thank you so much for being on The Curious Task with us. Thank you for receiving me and giving me this opportunity. Thank you. So Alain, as we were discussing before, in each episode, we start with a question and then go wherever the discussion leads us. So I'll toss it right over to you. Tell us, who knows best about planning a city? Uh, A city is really created by spontaneous order. Uh, the city, a city is created by the people who live there and work there. Uh, now, uh, those people create uh, create their own activities. Uh, they innovate usually. They they buy houses. They build houses. Uh, they create business. However, when a city becomes very large, uh, it is important to create an infrastructure which allow people to connect together. And this infrastructure is is generally not produced by spontaneous order. Mm. Somebody need to plan this infrastructure. My main disagreement with many of my colleagues is that many planners think that the most important thing in a city is to shape this city the way they think is more efficient. I think that the most efficient way of planning a city is not to invent a new shape, but to follow very very closely what is happening, what the people are creating, and trying to connect, uh, let's say, to support this spontaneous order rather than contradict it. So that's a, that's a bit, the, the I will say, uh, the misunderstanding about planning uh, you know, many planners think that they can shape a city the way a designer, uh, for instance, would design a smartphone or something like that. Mm. And it's not at all the case. This is a complete misunderstanding of how the city work. Uh, the, what is important in a city is to promote this creativity of, uh, uh, of the people who live in the city and not to try to channel them in a in an area that uh, you know the planner think is efficient. Uh, so the planner role is really a supporting role. It's not at all uh, you know they are not the Michelangelo of planning. Uh, they are not geniuses. They have to just follow. Sometimes uh, I, I compare uh, good uh, you know good mayors to janitors. You know hmm. that, that mayors don't like this definition, but basically you know a janitor is a very honorable job. It's a very important job, by the way. A bad janitor can ruin a building in no time. So it's a very important job. But it's basically a janitor is supporting uh, the people who are living in a building, you know, but with, with infrastructure. And the janitor, for instance, um, 
monitor, for instance, the way the elevator works, and he knows the the janitor will know uh, when to repair the elevator or even change it. And that's his important job. It's a very important job. But the janitor is not here to say, uh, I want uh, Nobel Prizes on the top floor and then uh, bakers in the ground floor, for instance. That's not his job. And that's planner are doing well. So, so it's fair to say that in your view, an urban planner's job is really to create a framework for a city to grow and progress in an efficient way, but not to actually specifically arrange things in the city. Exactly. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, for instance, you, you had the example uh, in many cities where I work, uh, especially cities in Asia or, or Latin America, which are developing relatively fast. Practically every time, uh, there are planners who say, well, in this part of the city, we will have uh, all the health services. And here, we will have Silicon Valley. And here, this is not the way things happen. You know, so in a way, they, they are wasting resources doing that. And sometimes even, they could have had the Silicon Valley appear, and they just kill it because they put it in the wrong place or they, they restrict the, the, the use of it. So something like uh, zoning a certain area for, um, let's say, uh, research and development and zoning another area for health and then zoning another ed- area for education and trying to keep other elements out of those zones. That would be sort of against the the, uh, the framework principle we just talked about then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, you know, for instance, Say, uh, I remember in, uh, some years ago uh, in Mumbai, you know, uh, they, they created uh, in the right place, actually, a, a new uh, CBD, you know, the, the recentering with the center of gravity. That was a, a good idea because it was. But they decided that in this CBD, they should reserve it to uh, exclusively financial, uh, you know, financial services. Another, you know, business is many other things than financial services. And the result was isolated building with indeed financial services. You could not find a restaurant in the whole place. You know, you could not, you, you will have to take a taxi to go to a restaurant or even get a sandwich. So that's, that's a plan. I mean, this is a caricature, of course. Mm-hmm. Now, there is one aspect we didn't talk about is that when you have a lot of people close together like that, there are indeed uh, negative externalities. You know, this became very apparent during the Industrial Revolution, where uh, suddenly uh, you had a lot of industries who were extremely polluting, you know, like a lead smelter, for instance. And, and those were created usually close to railways, and the railways were usually in the center of the cities because they created. So that created really what economists call negative externality, you know, the really bad effect. So, the, so here the planner has to intervene. But while these things were very clear during the Industrial Revolution, I think that now many planners consider that negative externality is just um, two buildings next to each other, one which is uh, two floors higher than the other. This is consider- This is not a negative externality. You know, there, there is a... Uh, now, it is true that, uh, you know, planning should regulate some use which are incompatible. But in a modern city, there are very few use which are incompatible, you know, compared to, to in the, the 19th century. And in a way, the market uh, sought out these, these uses. You know, for instance, say I live here in a uh, in a suburb in New Jersey. You know, a suburb of New York. Uh, the odds that somebody will want to create a, a steel industry in the middle of our neighborhood 
are zero because the market will prevent it. The land is far too expensive to do things like that. You know, the accessibility is not good for that. So, so I'm not saying that we should not have a law in Glen Rock which says no lead smelter should be built there, but it's completely irrelevant, you know, in a way. On the contrary, to prevent, for instance, doctors or architects to open an office uh, in, um, you know, in any building, I think is a terrible mistake. You know, it 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 makes things much more expensive. It, uh, uh, you know, there should be much more spontaneity in that. And we have example of this, uh, uh, let's say, more spontaneity in some cities of the world, like Tokyo, for instance, in Japan, where you you have this uh, competitive. You know, you have a much more tolerance for uh, different use of building and all you know, that. And I think it creates a very interesting uh, compound. Yes, I forget if this was an. In an interview you did, or if it was in your book, but you you told a story one time where you said that, and I forget which city this was, but you said you're in a city and the planners created a nice, beautiful government sector. But as you said, you couldn't find a restaurant or a tailor or anything you really needed in that area, so you actually had to go to the slums to get the services you needed. So that was very interesting story. That's right. Yeah, that was in Chandigarh. You know, uh, one of the first city I worked in. Actually, I was still a student, and uh, that was created by Corbusier uh, in India as a new capital of the state of Punjab. And uh, yes, uh, the the city was uh, very ideally planned, you know, with, with a separation of function. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it was planned like a, like a smartphone in a way. And that's not the way city work uh, because uh, the planner do not have the information uh, which is required. You know, you know, no planners know how many, how many coffee shops should be there and where. Uh, it, it has to be spontaneous, and so in the city, yes, you uh, there, there was a, a, a shopping center which was planned, but it was mostly uh, government-owned business, which it's not the type of thing where you will go every day, and so you will have the only spontaneous area where, in fact, the slum where the workers were, were building the city were living, and that's where you could find a good restaurant, coffee shop, or even tellers. Let's say at the time you you uh, in India you you bought uh, your clothes. Uh, Tailor-made, you know, even if you were very poor, especially if you were very poor, it was, it was cheaper. <laughs> so you, you mentioned it real quickly, but I'd like to go into it a little more. You said that basically the problem with trying to, as you termed it, be the Michelangelo of a city is that you don't have all the information you need to, to, to plan it in that Absolutely. way. Yeah. And, and, you know, cities are also submitted to external shocks right. constantly. And a successful city is a city which uh, which adapt very quickly, you know, in, in a Darwinian way to external shock. So the planners, usually when they, are, uh, they see this external shock, they try to maintain the status quo by regulating it. You know, for instance, say, uh, again, if we compare Mumbai to Hong Kong, uh, both Mumbai and Hong Kong, you know, their major industry in the 60s uh, were textile. You know, it's, people have forgotten that uh, Hong Kong was exporting textile. You know, there was, uh, if I remember well, it was about 40% of their GDP was manufacturing in Hong Kong. It was not services. Uh, and suddenly, uh, those big cities, both Hong Kong and, and uh, Mumbai, were not very well located for that. Uh, you know, there were a lot of competition from, uh, you know, smaller cities. Uh, the industry also was old, you know, the factories were old, the technology was old. 
Hong Kong immediately adapted when they see that they were losing market share. They adapted the land use. They allowed the, the factory to uh, rebuild, to transform them into office building or housing or whatever, where Mumbai tried to freeze the, the, the cotton mills the way they were built in the 19th century because they thought they could preserve jobs like that. Indeed, they were good jobs, but uh, when you see that there are those external shocks, you know, uh, which you have to adapt to it. And the people adapt, if you let them adapt, they will adapt. I mean, there will be a a transition which will be painful probably, but they will adapt. Where in the case of Mumbai, they try to freeze this land use for, for practically 30 years, which resulted in enormous uh, loss of welfare for the population, you know, which were, so so again, this adaptation to external shock is, is what's important. And only the people who live in the city can do it, you know. A planner cannot tell a, a factory, you know, a, a cotton mill where to locate or how to change the, the technology or something like that. They can only say, well, if you want to leave, leave, and uh, you know, let us see who is bidding for your land now. In your book, and I think this ties nicely into exactly what you were talking about right there, you essentially say that cities are primarily labor markets. Do you feel that some of the problems with the way certain urban planners look at cities is that they actually don't have this fundamental view? They, they might think a city is for this, that, or the other thing, but they don't understand it as a, as a primarily a labor market. Absolutely, yes. Uh, that's, uh, that's very clear when they the way they approach transport in particular. You know, the planners have always a dream that they could match employment and housing close by. And uh, that's, uh, say, all the doctors will live there and then you will have housing for doctors. I mean, I, I simplify a bit, but that's a bit the way they see it. You know, there was this thing in the 19th century that you will have, uh, well, uh, you will have factories and then you will have the workers housing next to the factory you know this is way by the way the the soviet and the and the chinese plan also their cities you know because basically the workers belong to the factory you know they were a factor of production they were not individuals they were a factor of production so but this of course you could have full employment that way but it's not a labor market people are located to a factory for their whole life and you have their an enormous loss of productivity. Although the people may be living very close to their employment thing, uh, you know, so that you save on transport, but you completely lose on productivity and, and personal initiative. So the labor market, the fact that you can change job, the, the, the labor market is not to get to your current job fast. It's to get to any job you may want fast. Which is a different proposition, right? In your in your book, you you say that one of the preconditions uh, for uh, to increase productivity in a city is that firms and households have the freedom to stay put or migrate at will. That's right, absolutely, absolutely, and change up, you know, to find the the best. This is very very true, in particular for low income people. You know, I mm. I've seen that in developing country where low income people are stuck because they are in very large cities. They have no mean. Their only mean of transport is walking, and they are stuck in employment where, in fact, there would be better employment in other part of the city, but they cannot reach. And and that that actually brings me to the second point I want to bring up. You also said another precondition to increasing the productivity of a city is is that travel within the city remains fast and cheap. Urban planners should be focusing on this. Right. Yes. Yes. Not not reducing uh, the length of transport, but increasing the speed. You know, the length of transport is really defined by the size of the city. And 
again, uh, this myth that you could match, uh, you know, housing and and jobs is a myth because if it if it worked, it would be wonderful. You know, everybody could, you know, you could live in a city like like Shanghai or. or or New York, and all of us could uh, walk to your work. I mean, that would be a lot of fun. But, you know, again, some planners sometimes, instead of looking at a city as a labor market, I have a feeling they look at it like if it was some kind of Club Med or, or, or Disneyland, you know. Right. Uh, we, we are all there to enjoy ourselves. Well, uh, we I hope we do. But, uh, you know, what is supporting our enjoyment is still the labor market. If the labor market collapses, there is no going to concert. There is no meeting your friend in a, in a pub or anything like that. This is built on top of the labor market. So you're saying basically that if it if my job is 10 kilometers away, but I can get there extremely fast, uh, and on the other hand, my another job I would have is three kilometers away, but I'm stuck in traffic for for a long period of time. That's right, not helping yeah. anybody. So, but a lot of urban planners, you're saying, focus on on the distance. On the distance, yes, right, yeah, rather than than the speed of transport, yes. Yes. And uh, you also say that, and I'm quoting here, real estate is sufficiently affordable that it does not distort the allocation of labor. That's another precondition to increase productivity in the city. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yes. Uh, you see, normally, if you look at any other area than, than housing, for instance, food or clothes, uh, you will find that any city produce a range of clothes, you know, for, which are very cheap. And very expensive. Huh? In New York, you you can find, uh, I'm sure they are, they are. You can get a suit for ten thousand dollars if you want. But at the same time, you can find a decent way of, uh, uh, you know, closing yourself for for probably fifty dollars, and you can go to work with fifty dollars of clothes. So you have this whole range available, and this adapt entirely to supply and demand. The same for food. You know, in in, in the center. You know, in Midtown Manhattan, uh, you find fantastically expensive restaurants, and then you have food carts too. You know, which are there, and you can have a sandwich on the food cart, and it's a, it's it's a decent food. You know, it will feed you. It's fine. In housing, you find that more and more, especially in the most successful city, again in the U.S., say San Francisco, New York, uh, Boston, or Washington D.C. Practically, uh, somebody who has a good job in the city, like for instance, a, a school teacher, you know, or a fireman, cannot possibly find uh, housing uh, within w- without uh, commuting at least an hour, an hour and a half, or maybe two hours. And this, to me, is scandalous because there is no reason for that. Uh, if you look in detail at the regulation which has been set up, very often. In order to improve housing, uh, planners have a tendency to decide on the consumption of each of us, and they they do not allow us to make trade-off between, say, distance and the amount of floor space that we want to consume. For instance, in New York, uh, there is a minimum floor size for new apartment, which, if I remember well now, is around 40 square meter, where, you know, they were, say, old low tenement, which allow people to live in 27 square meter, where I, I live in one of them, by the way, when I arrive in New York. And that's a trade-off my family wanted to make um, when we arrive in New York, living close to the center and sacrificing in a way uh, uh, area, you know, but that was a straight up. The advantage of that is that we arrive in New York, we didn't know anybody, we were young migrants, but living in the center, 
we had very, very soon, very close contact with uh, uh, people we work with, and we could maintain a social life where if, uh, you know, we wanted to have, uh, uh, say, a two-bedroom apartment, for instance, uh, we had one child, uh, we would have commuted to New Jersey or Long Island for two hours. It means that we completely sacrifice our social life. And so this trade-off has to be done by individuals. You know, planners can say, well, uh, a, a school teacher, uh, you know, should have this area. Or the, the, the school teacher himself or herself should select what is the best trade-off for them. And this trade-off, by the way, may change with time. You know, the first five years, they may decide that this is the best trade-off. After five years, they may decide to move to the suburb or whatever. But this should be left to the individual. All the regulation we are putting are preventing those trade-offs. I think I'm I'm all, I'm very concerned myself when I hear like in municipal politics when a certain community doesn't want a certain housing development maybe being built near them because the houses the houses are quote too small for their taste you know nobody wants the the smaller units near estate properties and nobody wants townhouses near apartments and and as you're saying this should be left up to the market and developers Absolutely. and people choosing it shouldn't be left up to uh, groups of people to decide how other groups of people can and can't live. Absolutely, you see that that's an extension of what. I was talking before about externalities, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, to have a a three-story building, uh, you know, a townhouse next to a detached house is considered to be an externality in the same way as as a lead smelter led to a primary school. You know, it is not. You know, it it is an ex. You know, it is not a, a, an externality at all. It is just uh, an imposition. You know, in a way, uh, this thing. Uh, it's a dilution of property right in a certain way. You know, planning impose on you, you know, you have a lot, you are the, the owner of this lot, but the planners say you cannot build more than two floor there and uh, you cannot have a business there. You, you know, you cannot. Uh, so it's, it's a decrease in your property right. So sometimes those decreases are justified. For instance, if you want to have a nightclub which is very noisy in the middle, well, maybe maybe there is a reason for that. But uh, but say in general, it's a it's a decrease. On the other hand, your neighbors have an increase in their property right, not on their own lot, but on your own lot. You know, for instance, if you you want to create a bakery at the corner of a block, uh, the neighbors will say, "We don't want it." You know, we, right. we 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 are used to have a a drugstore there, and we want the drugstore to remain there. We don't want a bakery. So this is an extension of their property right on your own property right, but at the same time, you have a dilution of their own property right. And I think this is very extremely detrimental uh, to um, to the growth of the city, and in particular to affordability of housing. I think that that, that takes us right to our break, Alain. That's been a great chat okay. so far. So we're going to take a quick break, everyone. I'm talking with Alain Berto here on the Curious Task. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Rosa Payarello, and Sabine Elchidiak. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task.
Welcome back, everyone. We're, you're here on The Curious Task, and I'm chatting with Alain Berto. Alain, before the break, we were talking about uh, ultimately how decisions on development and real estate and where people live sh- should ultimately be left up to the people involved in these transactions, not urban planners trying to arrange uh, the way a city looks. And and it actually reminded me of my neighborhood because it, my neighborhood is clearly was very planned by an urban planner. But there's yes. and I remember I at some point I heard that there was a, a disagreement something similar to that what you brought up that there should be a little commercial park put in the middle of the neighborhood where there could be a bakery and things and some people didn't want that they wanted bigger houses there and ultimately the somehow it ended up being that businesses could be put there and now everyone loves it businesses can decide when to move in and out of there there's like a a seafood restaurant there's a daycare there's a there actually is a bakery so well, i think uh, although some people were hesitant to have this idea that businesses can move in and out of this area as they as they please at the beginning now people have grown to love it so although this was still part of someone's plan it still shows a little bit of of the freedom of movement and and businesses doing as they please and people being able to to rent property the way they want is actually beneficial to a community rather than a scary thing. Right, yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. And uh, I'm glad that you you have this positive experience of, that the change was possible because my experience, for instance, in my little city of Glen Rock here, uh, and I've been participating in, in, uh, you know, in the planning board meetings several times, this would be absolutely impossible, you know, absolutely impossible. And uh, basically, we, we have this strange uh, conundrum in a city, is that a city thrives when things are changing and, you know, to adapt to, to new income, new, new people, new technology. But most of the people who live in the city are extremely conservative in the sense that they don't want change. And they are very suspicious of any change. They feel that any change will bring things. So it is clear that the planner should do a little arbitrage here in the sense that, for instance, in, in the case you were talking about introducing some commercial area closed in a residential community, uh, instead of saying even no bar or no nightclub, but saying, well, uh, you know, the, the level of noise after 10 o'clock should not be more than that many decibels. You know, something which is easy to measure and to reassure people that, you know, they will not be kind of a, uh, you know, a 24-hour fiesta or, day or something like that. So you can do that also for traffic, for instance, if you want to have a, a supermarket uh, you could say, well, you know, if if there are that many, you know, the, that many car traffic, they need to have to be at the corner, you know, and closer to where, you know, you could you could have some restriction like that. But I I, I think that it's it's up to the, the the user to decide how they will adapt to it. For instance, if you want to have a a nightclub in a certain, you know, is noisy and they feel that's that's the best location, they will have to. To comply to that by insulating and and not allowing people to, to when they come out to make noise or something like that. You see that. So I'm not saying there should be no restriction at all, but I think that uh, it's very often even the unknown which creates the most benefit. It's not even the known. So how can you plan the unknown? You know, or regulate the unknown in advance. So you you have to regulate it only by by common sense again. The old externalities, you know, if you look at the old Greek cities, for instance, of antiquity, and I found the same thing in Chinese city, actually, the old Chinese city, they all had regulation, some regulation about, for instance, uh, you were not allowed to drop 
uh, waters from one property to another. You know, the, the, the water from the roof or, or, or whatever have to flow in the street and the gutter, not, not in the property of your neighbor. So these are good neighbors' uh, regulation, which should always be there. You know, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, he didn't say the roof has to be this shape. It says uh, no water from the roof should flow in your neighbor's uh, uh, lot, which is a, a very different proposition. And I think that planning as as seen by extending design, the detailed design into regulation, which in fact they were simple regulation at the beginning. Yeah, and I like how you touched on the idea of the unknown. Like you said, how can you regulate the unknown? I, I think a lot of people are, are scared of the unknown. Like if we put a commercial area in a neighborhood, what could possibly go there is what many people may think. But I think people tend to forget that uh, people aren't going to put a business there just to bug you. Right, if, yeah, if, exactly. you if it's a neighborhood full of children, <laughs> yes, they're right. going to put a daycare. Yeah, right, if, yeah, if it's, yeah, right. if, if there's a neighborhood full of people that can spend money on a restaurant, a restaurant's going to go there. Yes, right, exactly. You know, a shopping center is not going to locate at the end of a cul-de-sac, you know, a residential cul-de-sac. They, they will never survive there, you know. It's a, so so very often you have a sorting by the market by itself, you know. And and business are trying to cater to, to their client, which are basically the people who live there. And in terms of the busyness of a city, um, you say that some urban planners are very scared of like growth or, or the or at least the rate of growth. Right. And I'm going to read a quote here from the book. You say, to the chagrin of urban planners, a city's growth rate over the mid or long term is largely unpredictable, and it is futile to pretend it is the result of careful planning. Um, so two part question for you. Number one, why are some urban planners so worried about the rate of growth and how the growth occurs? And and the second part of the question is, why shouldn't they be worried about that as much? Well, they they are worried because it's true that as a city expand, you have to develop the infrastructure which integrate this new part of the city. It is costly, uh, although in the long run, it's an investment which is worthwhile. The, the city benefit we have seen that, but uh, so it's it's a little complicated, let's say, and people don't like to have their job becoming a little more complicated than what it was. There is also, of course, from the the resident, sometimes the tax structure is such in the city that. Uh, the people who live there have the feeling that they are going to pay all the extra cost of infrastructure for the newcomers, but the newcomer will not be charged with it. And that, I think, can be solved easily. There are many examples, uh, like, for instance, in Texas, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the municipal uh, uh, utility district, you know, which has, I think, a very fair way of spreading the cost of new development on the new users, you know, and and making a very good uh, portion, let's say, of the the share infrastructure. So these are little mechanism which has to be done. But in general, uh, again, this uh, there is also a, a myth that smaller cities are more pleasant, or it is not quite true, you know, uh, that uh, less crime or something like that. It's not quite true. Smaller cities are also much more vulnerable to uh, economic shocks than the larger city. You know, if you have only one employer, you know, you have a city around a a steel mill or a shoe factory, and suddenly the shoe factory move, uh, everybody there is, uh, you know, it's a terrible economic crisis where in a larger city, uh, even if the financial sector is not doing so well, then you will have something else doing well at the same time. On on your question about uh, planning the unknown, 
also. Uh, you know, one of the success, if you look at uh, Silicon Valley, which is still considered to be a success of creativity and creating new industries, uh, you know, they were the, the first uh, people in, you know, first it didn't occur in one city. It, it was over 50 municipalities. Right. Uh, so no no municipality has the idea of uh, we are going to create Silicon Valley. And the high tech was a mix of, in fact, small industrial thing and, and office building in a way. You know, programmers, you could say, are it's like an office building, but uh, somebody who is tinkering with a mouse uh, is already semi-industrial. You know, uh, Apple and Hewlett-Packard were you know, tinkering with hardware and software at the same time, uh, we're typically doing it in a garage, in a residential area. And so the, the, the genius of the planners there was not to kill them. Right. You know, was not to, to say, hey, you are doing that in a garage, it's illegal, we are going to kick you out in an industrial area, and probably, you know, uh, Apple or, or Hewlett Packard will not have survived in an industrial area. Right, yeah. I, th- I think that's very interesting you bring that up, because I think in, when we sit here in 2019 and look at what, like, something like Silicon Valley is now, we forget about the origins of it. Right, I've, yeah. I've, read qu- I've read quite a lot about that, and it was interesting to me. I think, if, I forget if it was in, like, the uh, a book about Apple or if it was a book about Microsoft, but there was... Uh, one of them that said that uh, in in the spare time of starting the business, some of the workers and some of the employees went to work in farmers' fields that were very close by as a part time job. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yes. So right, it, yeah. they were in a diverse area. It wasn't that they were they were in a, a Silicon Valley designated area to start their businesses and grow. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and fortunately, uh, you know, I think the the planners in there. Uh, trying to put, you know, activities each each of them in their in the right box. Uh, they they didn't know how to 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 put a label on on high tech because again this mix of uh, you know tinkering with hardware and and software at the same time. So they were not really blue collar worker in the in the traditional sense, but at the same time they were not office worker either, you know, because they they were, uh, you know, they are soldiering irons and they, they're doing things like that. And eventually, when when companies like Apple got to a point where they could leave the garage, they needed office space, right? So right. one can only imagine if there was a restriction at the time that said only hardware companies can go in this office space, then we'd be in big trouble. Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. In terms of like the the infrastructure. Of a city. We were talking a little bit about this before, how people need to be, you know, get around easy and things like that. There was an interesting part of the uh, the part of your book where you talked uh, about cities being primarily labor markets. You said many people often forget about business to business movement in a city, like freight. Uh, when and 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 when I read that, it was very interesting. I had to stop reading for a second, and, and I sat there and thought that is true. When when I hear about the municipal politicians talking about the city, or I even think of the city. Sometimes I get very caught up in thinking of, you know, person X going to Y job. I, I don't really sometimes stop to think about all the freight and all the business activity that's in a city too, that, that urban planners need to make sure uh, can get through the city efficiently. So that was a very interesting point. Yeah, they, this is a very important uh, area, I think, that is neglected. Uh, freight normally is between 10 and 20% of the traffic. Uh, of a city, but it's absolutely vital. Imagine again a city like like New York or San Francisco, 
And uh, imagine the amount of food, for instance, which has to be brought in the city every day. The the amount of uh, uh, skilled people just to maintain the air conditioning or the heating system. You know, you have you have plumbers with their tools which are constantly there fixing the city. You cannot ask those people to bicycle to work. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> uh, you, know you, you imagine you have you know you have a sink which is overflowing, and uh, you are in New York, and the plumbers say, well, I am in the L train and I'm stuck there. And, uh, you know, you expect the plumbers to come here as fast as possible with his tools. And he cannot. So you have to admit that in a city, you have to have a, you have a diversity of demand for transport. And you have to have, therefore, the response is a, a, a huge diversity of means of transport, which can be combined together to respond these, to this very different demand. You talked about things being diverse in a city. Another aspect that uh, of of diversity you were talking about in your book is is knowledge spillovers. If if we segregate people and compartmentalize, we lose knowledge spillovers. Can you go into that a bit and explain why knowledge spillovers are so valuable? Yes, uh, you know this is really uh, I think also the the explanation that uh, uh, the economists give to the empirical data showing that as as a labor market get much larger. Uh, the productivity of each individual is higher, although it's a bit counterintuitive. When you go to Bangkok or Jakarta and you see the enormous traffic jam, you know, the pollution, you say, well, oh, how are those people more productive? You look at the data, you realize that still people working in Jakarta contribute to the wealth of the country much more than people living in a smaller city. And this is due to the spillover. The spillover is that you have people in the same office or next to each other who have very different skills and and they start learning from each other. I have seen that, you know, during the the computer revolution of the 80s where computers start being introduced in offices. At the time, uh, there was a real segregation between, say, uh, People call the support staff. Basically, secretaries were typing letters on on uh, on uh, you know typewriters, and then professionals were using computers and things like that. And little by little, uh, the two fields start merging, and you could see secretaries were so far had only type letters. You know, they were given draft and they were just typing. Suddenly, they learn about computers and they learn how to connect computers together to a network so that files will be sent directly rather than by mail. And this was a spillover. You know, suddenly you have people who have no no technical knowledge before, but they learn on the job because it was absolutely necessary to do it. And rather than to say, well, we, we are going to continue to type letters, they they decided to learn. And some, by the way, were unable to learn, but some did learn. And suddenly they were in a completely different field. And, ex- and their productivity, if you imagine somebody with just typing letters, receive a draft, just type the letters. And suddenly this person, after four or five years, is able to run a network between computers and be sure that you know this network works well. Imagine the increase in productivity that this person has, as you know, rich because of again this spillover. So there is a spillover within, of course, uh, an office, but there is also a spillover. I think by uh, just uh, um, you know maintaining social contact. 
would suddenly tell you, well, there's a job there, a job there, and then suddenly you, you don't feel completely, uh, you know, maybe comfortable with a job, but you take it and then you learn new things and things like that. I mean, for us, when we moved to New York, it was the 60s, yes, the, the late 60s, uh, we found, uh, you know, that this social network uh, that we established, uh, you know, was very important to get new jobs, a new opportunity to, to work and learning new things. That's a, you know, we always learn on the job. I mean, I hope uh, most of us do. <laughs> and uh, we do that only, again, if we, we have a, a wide uh, number of contacts that we establish either socially in, uh, in bars and restaurants or clubs or, or churches or whatever. And we acquire that in city in a small village uh, you you know everybody. Everybody is very nice, but you do not have much uh, possibility of uh, of learning things from others. And even areas that we may consider now as as blocks like like Silicon Valley, even in there, there's a lot of knowledge spillover. There's different levels of software being worked Absolutely. on. There's different types of computers and technology being worked on. So that's it. That's important for them as well. Absolutely, yes, right, right yeah. There's a lot of people listening to this conversation that might think that we're we're spending uh, so much time. To talking about sort of cities as they grow in large cities uh, when uh, these people might prefer a, a smaller city. I, when I've talked to people about this sort of thing, they think that, oh, one day every every city is just going to be a big city and there'll be no, you know, smaller, nice cities to go to if that's if that's what they believe. And, yeah. and I, there was a part in your book where you did mention that it, it seems to be over time that the proportion of larger cities to smaller cities stays relatively consistent because as you were mentioning before, uh, smaller cities and larger cities actually play both uh, very different roles, important roles, but different roles in an overall economy. Right, yes, yes, absolutely. And, and you know, when people say I'd rather live in a small city, uh, my answer is, well, why don't you do it? Uh, you know, they again, in a free society, uh, this was not possible in the Soviet Union or in China, in the, and even now in China, there are some restrictions. But uh, in, in our society, this is part, you know, there's nothing which prevents it. So uh, we all made trade-off again. Uh, you know, we make trade-off. And, and sometimes at different time of your life, you will prefer to go to a smaller city. And this is fine. You know, there are certain things which are better done in a smaller city. Uh, you know, we're things which are land intensive or, or, or sometimes labor intensive, but do not require uh, extremely high skills. Uh, so you may have a, a very interesting, you know, again, I don't want to give the impression that, uh, uh, you know, there is no salvation outside <laughs> a large city. That's not true. Uh, we, again, uh, people make their own trade-off. This is true within the city, but it should be true at at the national level, and I will expand it at the world level. Mm. Something about migration here, you know. Uh, imagine you are a young man in Bamako, Mali, and uh, you have studied a bit, you are full of uh, expectation, and you realize Bamako is so badly run, you know, so many problems, you know, there are power shortages. You don't see much of a future for yourself there. So you have a choice. Either you try to change Bamako to make it in a more efficient city. For instance, uh, you have no power cut, the, the water is flowing in the tap, you, the garbage is removed. Or you just move to Copenhagen or Brussels. And uh, uh, so you have this choice. Statistics shows that 
for the welfare of this person, moving to Brussels or Copenhagen will enhance the welfare of themselves and their family much certainly and surely than the opposite. Right. You know, we have to consider this aspect. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, necessarily every country can absorb as much uh, immigration as well. I'm not saying that really. But I'm, I think that we should look very carefully about these things. How much a city can absorb instead of uh, outside migration and that – in the long run, it is, you know, if they have established this pressure, you know, how much time it takes for somebody from Bamako to adapt to the norms of Copenhagen. You know, it's not so much the law of Copenhagen, they have to, it's the norms. You know, there are certain norms in order to 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 uh, to have a, a large city work that that we all have to to follow and how long does it take to adapt to those norms and uh, and then then there is a, a case for uh, you know much more open migration than we have you know again on these things uh, especially in cities like Europe which are uh, losing population in terms you know demography and losing population or Japan or Korea you know that and and very soon actually China is going to be faced with the same problem of demography so uh, so the the uh, you know the, the welfare of those cities is also based on uh, absorbing migration and being able to integrate those migrants for sure yeah in a within a developing country for instance if i look at india i'm not talking now about migration from outside india toward india but within india i think the a, a big uh, criteria for the success of a large city like mumbai or hyderabad or, or delhi is you are absorbing people coming from the countryside who have skills which are real but useless in the city. You know, they know how to grow mangoes, for instance. Useless in the city. How fast are you able to integrate those people in the mainstream of the city? You know, to have jobs which are part of, which are city jobs, which are. And I think that a large part of it is due to uh, allow them to consume as little housing as they want, but have access to the infrastructure right away. Hmm. You know, clean water supply, health and education. Right. And and do not do not fix yourself on, you know, if they have just a shack with a corrugated roof on top of them, this is not important compared to access to clean water supply. Uh, garbage being removed from their neighborhood and health and education. Unfortunately, planners concentrate on the opposite. You know, they want everybody to have a, a three-bedroom apartment, uh, but uh, because they can't, then they end up in a shack which has no water supply. The garbage is never removed. There is no sewer. Right. So this is a wrong trade-off. Right. And if if, if the planner sets a, a minimum size of house, let's say, like you were right, saying yeah. before, they're what they're effectively doing is saying anyone that can't match that minimum because of whatever their income situation or wealth situation, they're actually going to lose access to the city and the benefit that could come to them from just moving to the city. And they also lose very often their property right, by the way. Right. They are completely, they are there illegally. So if they are the victim of scams or something, they have no appeal. And I think it's interesting that you touched on this because I think when people think of immigration, 
migration, whether it's from another country to another or even just within cities in a country, people tend to always think of what the effects of people moving to the city are, but they don't, so I should say costs, but they don't consider the benefits of that, right? Like, as you said, if if cities are primarily labor markets, maybe an influx of people ready to work at a potentially, you know, $2 less wage than the current worker somewhere else, that's a good thing for an employer. So there's a lot of costs and benefits and on net people moving to a city can be a net benefit just simply from being there and being new people to the city. Absolutely. Yes, yes. And again, uh, we should not neglect the spillover also of people coming with a different perspective, Right. providing again that they adapt to the norms uh, of the city, you know, the behavioral norms of the city. That's important. And as you you said, statistically, it it is just it's shown that uh, sometimes moving for people is often just the the best thing they can do for their own welfare and for their family. That's, and for their families, yes, yes. So prevent yes. preventing that with regulations of, like we were saying before, how big of a house they should live in and things like that. That's not helping anybody. It's not helping the city, and it's not helping the person in question either. Absolutely. Actually, that ties very nicely to another point I wanted to make sure I brought up here. I think we've discussed a lot, but there, there might be more to as well, is that it often, unfortunately, is the case that the urban planners have good intentions for the poor or the lower income. Yeah, but in reality, yes. the results... Are, are not that at all. I think minimum housing sizes in certain areas is a good example of that. But I think there's many other examples of an urban planner's uh, good intentions for a city or for those of lower income that just don't end up working very well. Absolutely, yes. Uh, that's uh, most of uh, the regulation are well intentioned. I, I don't, have, you know, I don't believe in conspiracy theory or something like right, that. Right, right. Keeping the poor out. Right? Uh, I think that they are well intentioned. They just backfire. You know, uh, something like rent control, for instance. There is a practically unanimity among economists that it's always backfire. So you give a a small advantage for a few years to the people who have are suddenly under rent control. You know, you you they they will be able to spend more money on other things than rent for some time, but you practically freeze the supply of housing for everybody else. Right. So that been again, I take this this new uh, new school teacher, you know, who is coming to New York, uh, this school, new school teacher will never have an affordable house, you know, uh, because uh, everybody is living in rent control. So rent control means also people are never going to move from where they are. Right, right. So, so that prevent also mobility within the city. Right, yeah. Because because your the rent control your subsidy is linked to the house. You know, you are a bit like a serf. You know, you are attached to the land. You mm. are attached to your house. You lose. It's the same in a way with public housing. You know, your uh, public housing your your subsidy is linked to. If you move out, you are losing it. Right. You have to stay where you are. So, so if you want to help people, it should be, if it's necessary, this help should be mobile. It should go with them. You know, you should, uh, you, sh- you could help their income, you know, with uh, uh, something like that if it's necessary, but, but certainly not uh, link the subsidy to a specific location in the city, which is a case of rent control or, or public housing. Right. So if urban planners want to help people out that have lower incomes, maybe they should consider, like you said, subsidizing an activity rather than subsidizing a piece of land. 
That's right. Yes, yes, right. Absolutely. That is very interesting that you, you got into that because if, if it's true, I find that a lot of pu- at least public discussions, I'm not an urban planning expert, but the things you hear in the media and you think things you hear municipal councillors talking about, it's always to do with like solid things like the infrastructure, the bridge, the road, how people can move around the city, but they don't often concentrate on how regulations might ca- cause friction for people to change a job or, or move into a different house. So that, that is a very interesting point. Yes, right. And this is the essence of the city. Again, if you move to a very large city, it's precisely because there are a lot of jobs which are available there and you may want to have the best for yourself, you know. And again, we all have completely different skills. So sometimes we have a mismatch with our skill and our current job. And being in a large city allows you to match your skills with with a new job. Right. You know, if not, you are stuck in a job that you don't like. And you are probably not very good at it, and and uh, you are not very productive, and everybody suffers from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mobility, this mobility is very important. Do you feel that because I, I you touched on this earlier? Uh, do, do you feel that urban planners are also heavily influenced by the wants of communities? Because you said earlier that communities tend to be in, in a certain way very conservative, right? They don't like change yes, right, around yeah, them. Yeah, right. They yeah. they don't want um they don't want a certain type of housing near them. That that sort of thing. Um, right. Yeah. Do do urban plan like urban planners aren't necessarily people that. Uh, are just like kind of isolated in their own bubble. I'm sure that they're they also feel sometimes unduly influenced by perhaps a community that doesn't want another housing area built around them or things like that as well, even right, if it's yes. the wrong attitude to have. Yes, I think that, uh, uh, you know, by the way, we are always talking about urban planners here. It's it's a bit a, a, a proxy for the whole city administration. Right. You know, there's the city council, there's a mayor, there's also the, the political aspect of it, you know. Uh, so we are, you know, Using the word city planner is a shortcut. You know, right. many regulations are in fact imposed by, by you know, the the city planner are just implementing them. You know, that's a, so. But yes, it's true. Uh, I I can sympathize in a certain way uh, for people who wanted, you know, the status quo. However, they have to realize that themselves were able to move to the city because there were no status quo. You know, when I see people in Chelsea, for instance, in New York, uh, who live now in the eight-story building and they argue against 12-story building, uh, and uh, and they say, we want to keep the neighborhood the way it is. Well, this neighborhood just uh, 50 years ago were townhouses. And if they are able to live there in the eight-story building, it's because the townhouses has been demolished. And uh, so, uh, you know, in a way, they are closing the door after them. You know, they, they, they were happy to move there and they, they were not, you know, nobody in a city is a is an original city dweller. You know, you, you're right. always there at a certain time, you know. And so, so again, this change. What is interesting, again, we are getting back to property right uh, extension. Uh, very often those people I'm talking about this Chelsea neighborhood, which is being discussed now in New York. Uh, one of the men, their main argument against uh, higher building at uh, on the avenues is because they have free parking along the street, and they say, well, there will be more demand for parking, so we will. It will be more difficult to park free in the street. So you see, they they have a, an apartment in Chelsea, but they consider that. They have a, a property right on on the street mm. to park their car, where in fact that's not uh, you know this is a public space. Uh, the city should allocate it whatever is the best for the community. 
that's a really good point. People, people, I, I, if they live in a city for a certain amount of time, they start to feel ownership of things beyond, beyond their, their own, own property, property right? Yes. Even in Ottawa, Canada, where, where I'm recording this from, every now and then it'll come up every few months. If, if a certain street downtown should be shut down just for pedestrian traffic and, and bikes. Yeah. And in reality, if you go stand on that street in any given day, you see lots of things happening. People are dropping people off in cars. Freight is moving through. So for, some, right, yeah. for someone in a condo that says, I think this street should just be for me to walk around or bike around and they're certainly only viewing it how they would like it not how it benefits the whole city right yeah 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 you see it's a bit again the the city as a club med you know (laughs) right right you know it's it's kind of fun if your your street is a club med but the the rest of the city works well but but if all the streets are club med then the city stop working if if every area of a city was just a private neighborhood association we have a lot of problems a lot of problems yes yes certainly well Alain, we've talked about a lot here uh and at the end of every episode i like to bring it full circle so you can have the last word and put a finer point on everything we've talked about if it's possible we we did explore a lot so i always ask so if we can summarize it what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on who knows best about planning a city well first that the, the strengths of a city come from the spontaneous growth of the activity of the people who live in the city and this growth and this uh, this individual initiative cannot be planned in advance uh, and uh, a city has to accept that there will be change all the time and that those change are necessary to survival. On the other hand, uh, you still have the need for a top-down planning when it comes to infrastructure because trunk infrastructure, you know, the primary infrastructure connecting different parts of the cities together, uh, bringing water supply, removing garbage, uh, this has to be done from the top down. It, it has to be designed. It's not spontaneous, you know. You don't have spontaneous system to remove garbage for a very, from a very large city. You have to just study it and, you know, from an engineering part of you. So if you can conciliate those two aspects, you know, the spontaneous aspect uh, which has to be respected, and the top-down design, which has to serve the spontaneous growth of the city, rather than to say, well, you know, the city should be like that because it would be much more convenient for me to remove the garbage if the street were organized this way. I think this is a wrong approach. You have to say, this is the way people live at those densities in this type of activity, what is the best way to remove the garbage rather than to say, I have to change land use in order to remove the garbage in a certain way. Now, I'm using garbage. Usually people use transport for that. But let's say they select a mean of transport and they say, if you know, to, me, to make this mean of transport more efficient or, or financially viable, everybody has to live this way. I think this is a wrong approach. You know, they, 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 uh, you have to find the mean of transport which serve the way the people are working right now, not to change the way the city is organized just because you want to optimize transport. I think that's a great way to sum everything up. Alain, thank you so much for talking to us today on The Curious Task. Thank you for inviting me. It was uh, most enjoyable. Thank you so much. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. 
Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.